0: Come spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men at arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min maxers, horny bards, and blood soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role playing games here on Roland Bone my name is ryan howard and i shall be your guide good evening boneheads and welcome back to rollin bones with ryan howard where we are making old school young again. I am your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard. I am the R in OSR, And joining us once again this evening is uh, someone who should be familiar to all of the faithful Boneheads out there. Uh, he is, of course, the mastermind behind the Dare Luck Club, one of my uh, favorite... Uh, thematic RPGs, an RPG where the setting and the system really work hand-in-hand, hand, which coincidentally is what we will be talking about tonight. So uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome back to Roland Bones, Mr. Luau Lu.
1: Hey, thanks, Ryan. I, I don't know where I am on the, the Levi Combs uh, scale of of returning to the show, but man, I you know I'm a fan of the show, and it's always awesome to be on.
0: Absolutely. And uh, also... In addition to talking about uh, kind of system and setting stuff, uh, you did recently wrap up a Kickstarter for Unnatural Selections, uh, which is, a, uh, according to the Kickstarter page, an expanded collection of atomic animals, mutant monsters, and alien altercations for uh, mutant <laughs> crawl classics and other compatible RPGs. So we'll also be talking a little bit about monster design uh, towards the end of the show here.
1: Yeah, man, that project taught me a lot. It's kind of been a been a cool voyage. So, look forward to that.
0: Awesome, awesome. So, uh, jumping right into the topic at hand here, uh, right as we were putting things together for this episode, uh, a little video by uh, a little known YouTuber who some of you may have heard of, named Matt Colville, dropped, and. Uh, The video itself is called What Are Dungeons For? Uh, I originally thought that this would be a video about uh, essentially explaining why dungeons exist in D&D and like the title says, what dungeons are for. But what it ended up being was an exploration of system and setting and how certain systems don't work well with certain settings. And he couched it as always in d terms, talking mm-hmm. about how 5e no longer really is about dungeon crawling and the rules for 5e don't really support what dungeon crawling was back when he first started playing. And I felt like it was a good companion to the conversation we were having today. Both Lou and I watched it. And so uh, Lou, just to start things off, what, are you, what were your thoughts on uh, that video?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I told you before the show, uh, you know, I've I keep my head under a rock. I don't know all these, you know, popular names in, in role-playing nowadays. I just basically just try to design stuff and have fun with my friends. So uh this was the first time I gotta to listen to Matt and uh blew me away. I mean, you just a real articulate guy and and the points he was making in this video particularly really hit home. Um you know, that I think the the overall question he poses to the listener is uh, what is your system or game about? And you know oftentimes we're playing these games and we never really stop and think about that and think about, well, you know, what themes does that bring to hand and and, and how does it manage those themes? Um, so I really love the the video and I, I think it you know it's gonna be fun to talk with you tonight about that and about how you know you know it is you know he he, he asked this question is d and d about anything? you know, has it ever been about anything? Is it currently about anything? And I I really think that's a deep and interesting question to ask. Uh, you know, he, he gets to the point he proposes it used to be about dungeon crawling. I've got some other thoughts on that, uh, you know, slightly other thoughts on that. But uh, but yeah, well, you know, what a f- fascinating thing to, to kind of think about and kick around.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and one of the interesting things <clears throat> just on that subject of D&D used to be about dungeon crawling... There is a subset of the D&D uh, universe out there who, whenever you mention story or anything like that, they just kind of turn up their nose because they <laughs> just want to go through a dungeon. And a point that I've always made kind of directed at that crowd is if there is a hole in the ground or a series of holes in the ground that are filled with monsters and then valuables, someone put those things there. And mm. they put them there for a reason. And the fact that there is now this hole to explore, uh, it didn't just spontaneously appear there. Someone had to put it there. That in and of itself is a story. So well you know,
1: and I kind of this is my, my point of contention. Um, so so to, to preface it, mm-hmm. you know, I got into gaming in, in what I would call the second generation. So I, I'm getting into it right when first edition's ending, second edition is beginning. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's my heyday, but talking with people and having played with people that, that got into it at the beginning and, and looking at some of those first products, I mean, the very first module that exists, uh, is Blackmore's, uh, Temple of the Frog and good 90% of that module is, is above ground, is, uh, politics is, uh, you know, subterfuge within the, the, the cult of the frog and all that, um, There's a dungeon there, but it's not that glorious. I mean, it's, you know, basically a whole bunch of barracks, and then below that, a a couple little, you know, uh, hidey holes for the frogmen, and and some of the scientific stuff that you find in the module later on. It's got that whole weird science thing going on. Uh, The the Bronstein campaign that was even, you know, prior to Dungeons & Dragons, all above ground. All political stuff, uh, city interactions and stuff, you know... uh, building war bands and in in making alliances um so i you know i don't know was it always dungeon crawling is that really the main thing i i don't really feel like it really was 100 percent. i mean obviously it was heavy in that but uh i mean you, you know i'm sorry to keep going but but uh you know the other first couple generations of modules against the giants uh now granted you know you can say well you know a a fortress or a stead, fa- a steading or whatever is a uh, is just an above ground dungeon, but it wasn't um, it wasn't set up like Monster Hotel. You know, it, it was right. set up with you know this is this is their abode and this is where they have their stuff, and you got to figure your way through it, and figure out a way to defeat them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, absolutely. And even like Keep on the Borderlands has more of a uh, a story to it. Uh, yeah against the cult of the reptile god another super early oh, adventure is is very kind of story driven as well as having uh, a dungeon present so yeah i mean I, I i do think the the kind of people who say it's just about dungeon crawling are placing a little bit more emphasis on dungeon crawling perhaps because that's what they enjoyed at which mm. is you know that's cool you you if you just want to go through a dungeon, you don't even have to name your character, just, you know, killing <laughs> things and, and poking Bob walls one, with a the then yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and you know, it, it, in fairness to him, uh, and again, I, I just love this video. I thought he had wonderful points. Mm-hmm. He kind of eventually said, well, he thinks original d d was a, a survival horror uh, theme. And I could see that. I mean, it really, you know, you're always in desperation, you know, playing the you know O D D first edition D D, um, you know you're always you know like he said you, you you count those arrows and you decide hmm is it really worth losing one to try to attack from this distance and uh, so you know
0: mm-hmm. yeah but the I I think he ultimately came around to the point and this was the point that I really enjoyed and really took away from this uh, what D D is now is something completely different from what D&D was then. And, you know, it that's kind of an obvious point. That's something a lot of people bring up nowadays. But essentially, D&D, as it currently stands, no longer really supports dungeon crawling in that way. So if you're looking to, like, purely just go into the tunnels and, uh, you know, fight your monsters and find your treasure and stuff like that, 5e can do it. But 5e doesn't do it the best that it can be done. And the ultimate point that he came around to was the the best system is the system that supports the kind of play that you want to facilitate at your table.
1: Yeah. Now, I think you can flip that coin too. And you can say that, you know, if you're wanting more of the, uh, you know, power fantasy sort of thing that, that most people associate with 5e, you, you couldn't use BX you know, as a system to do to do that. It just, it doesn't accelerate the players fast enough and give them enough, uh, you know, lateral options uh, for what they can do and how they can do it to, to meet that kind of a, a theme. So, yeah, it's, it, you know, did, did you, when he asked the question, what is D&D about? I mean, did, did you spend any time kind of thinking about that? Like, you know, is there a way to describe it? Is is, is it a theme of some sort? Has it ever been?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I turned that question over in my head. Uh, I, I was driving when I was listening to that video the first time, and I think I sarcastically in my head said, well, it's about Dungeons and Dragons. But <laughs> the, I, I did kind of mull that question over, and I, I couldn't really come up with a good answer because, and I think this is a problem that like they run into whenever they try to make a D&D movie, as we're seeing now, you, know, you you can make a, a batman movie cuz there's a you know a clear story around who batman yeah. is and and what his world is all about and all that stuff but D&D D&D is it's a a sandbox it's a tool set it's not one specific thing and so putting a uh, like a precise uh button on this is what D&D is about that's really hard to do if not impossible
1: yeah, yeah I, I agree 100%. I don't think, you know, I think especially at this point D&D is about d and I mean, it's it's like its own own genre now. Uh and and that's okay. I th- I think that's great. Um just recently on uh uh Vintage RPG podcast, they had re-released their episode on Ravenloft and I think it was Stu that was saying, "Oh, you know, Elb. Ravenloft doesn't do gothic horror well, or it doesn't do horror well, uh, I sort of disagree with him. I, I mean, it doesn't, you know, even though it's a and d property, and even though it's, you know, um, it, it's sort of confined by those rules, and those rules have so many things that, that, you know, turn against the idea of, of helplessness and horror and all that, uh, it still can do it, uh, and do it okay, um, but but is it you know is D D about Gothic or no? Uh, it, it, but it can be a little bit you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's just such an interesting little animal that can do so many things. But then what we want to talk about tonight is does that make it the go-to for running you know a campaign of Gothic horror or a campaign of high fantasy or whatever?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know how do, how does system and setting connect and is it important?
0: Absolutely, yeah, and and that's it's interesting that Stu brings that up. Stu on Vintage RPG is very much, I, I mean, his whole thing is horror is helplessness. He's the one that says that mm-hmm. kind of over and over again, um, and to an extent, he's right. But I I feel like the horror of Ravenloft, uh, when it's done right, is the fact that no matter what you do. At the end of the day, you know all the pieces are going to get set right back up where you left them. Uh, Mm -hmm. All of these people uh, are still going to be stuck in the same loop of their lives. And even, like, Strahd, you didn't kill him. He's going to—he'll be back in just a matter (laughs) of time, and he'll still be tormented, and he's eventually going to try to do what exactly he was doing all over again.
1: Yeah, well, I remember— so I, I played that game two years after it was published, which back in that day was still brand new right because things you know things didn't proliferate like they do now mm-hmm. and uh, I played broad daylight my, 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 my buddy Dan and Paula was running it we're sitting in his bedroom he was running it and uh, it was scary and it was scary because it there were things about that module, the original module that um, that, that changed the rules on you. I mean even the, the intro with the mist that was a new thing. And the idea that, oh, wait, if I go backwards, I'm dying. You know, what what's this about, huh? Mm-hmm. I can't cast teleport. I can't cast, you know. Um, and as those rules got changed, it gave you that feeling of uncertainty and that, that you know, dissidence that that uh, kind of leads to the hopelessness that, that Stu talks about. So I really did, you know, I wasn't terrified. I wasn't, you know, but it did give me a definite different feel than I'd ever felt from a DD game to that point.
0: Now to kind of dig into the, the meat and potatoes of what we're we're talking about here, um, what are some examples that come to mind of things a system needs to do to make the setting work, uh, just yeah. kind of in your mind?
1: All right, so um, I, I'm really big on this. I, I, in the old era of gaming, there were thousands of companies producing thousands of games with totally different rules from one another. And I miss that era to a degree, you know. It's it it is nice to have things that plug and play in each other, but but man, having that you know separation. So to give you an example, um, so I got two top secrets here. Actually, no, hold the hold the phone. We got three top secrets here. All right, we got the original top secret, okay, Roll Ross mutant, and we got the Douglas Niles top secret si which came out after that and then back to merle with uh new world order mm-hmm. these three games different systems completely different games same genre they're, they're all three spy genres but the way the rules work gives you a, a whole different uh venue of, of how you're operating it's like in the original game it is uh really kind of more like uh Oh, uh, you, know, you know, like actual real-world espionage. You know, uh, Tinker Tailor, uh, whatever that movie's called. <laughs> uh, it, it's that every everyday guy spy sort of thing. Your, your characters kind of suck at most things they're doing. Um, combat is belabored and, and, and likely to be deadly. Um, so the, it's it's a lot more of the, the whole mentality of being a spy. You jump into Top Secret SI, I mean, you can tell from just the cover of this dude... I mean, this is uh, this is more James Bond. This is more uh, guerrilla warfare and, and special forces and stuff like that. More, it's, it leans towards action and gunfire and, and way off the charts, uh, you know, stunts and equipment and all this. And then we get back to the the New World Order one, and it's kind of a happy medium. It's it's kind of like a James Bond movie, like the the Daniel Craig James Bonds, where you know you've got some of that everyday man spy stuff going on but then you also have the action sequences it plays fast and easy and, and the rules are designed for that it's it's a much more cinematic game versus the other two that you know one of them's a lot more of a uh, like a slow uh slow burn <laughs> uh, uh record keeping kind of thing and, and then the SI version is, is more of Dungeons and Dragons in a, in a a spy world kind of thing almost mm-hmm. so you know the, the rules mattered a lot. You know, I own all three because they're different games and they have different feels. Uh,
0: Now, did you feel like, uh, with, with all three of those versions of top secret, did you feel like each of them nailed kind of the, the specific sub genre of that overall espionage genre that they were going for?
1: I, I do. I, you know, I, I love all three of these and I would play them any day, you know, for what they are. Um, but you also see, I can't say so much for the New World Order one because it's it's still fairly fresh and they don't have a very expanded product line yet. But um, for the other two, um, you see places where they get into trying to be something a little bit out of the specific portion of the genre that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, the original Top Secret did this with uh, Rapid uh, Strike, which is a, more of like a commando kind of thing where you strike an island and you try to take out this drug manufacturing facility. And uh, on the surface, it looks so cool, so fun and everything. You get to playing it with these rules and the combat slows it down so much that it's like, you know what? Skip trying to kill these guys. Let's sneak our way into the the end zone here and and, and take care of the, the, you know, sink the ship and capture the the drug lord here. Um, Same thing with the SI. There's modules that it has where they try to do more of the 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 real world spy stuff, uh, you know, uh, intercepting documents, decoding them, things like this. And it comes down to just die rolls. You never feel like you're doing anything other than, oh, my character did that. Or as Matt put it, the character sheet did that. You know, it wasn't the player, it was the character sheet that won. Uh, So, you know, it's my answer.
0: Yeah, and and on top of kind of those uh, top secret examples, you also in the espionage genre have stuff like Spycraft, which is more like uh, Metal Gear Solid, I think, mm-hmm. is that that kind of slice of the the spy genre. And then you have Classified or uh, the James Bond RPG, which is very specifically tailored to James Bond style role playing. No, uh, yeah. for me. I like a setting or I like a system that makes you feel like you are deeply ingrained in the setting that you're embodying. So as an example, Deadlands, I like that cards and poker chips are part of the gameplay of Deadlands. I know they're part of Savage Worlds broadly which gets into some of my problems with Savage Worlds in certain settings, but specifically for Deadlands, you have this game that they played in the Wild West that's a big part of a lot of Western movies that you are basically playing a version of along with a role-playing game, and it really does kind of fit thematically.
1: Yeah, that those accoutrements just kind of bring you into that a little, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. Another good example of this is something like uh, Mutants and Masterminds, where everything in uh, like the, the GM's guide and the player's guide, it, it describes breaking up your sessions into like panels and scenes, and it really encourages you to lay things out as if you are playing a comic book, not necessarily a role-playing game. And so having that kind of adherence to the genre tropes to the story structure of a superhero comic book, things like that really make for a good setting and system pairing, in my mind.
1: On that note, uh, if you've ever have you ever uh, played the Heroes game by Mayfair? It's one of the the DC Heroes game. I haven't. Um, so one of the things they did in this that again was a a system thing that that nailed a setting is they use these logarithmic charts where each result is double the last result. So like if a one allows you to lift 10 pounds, then a two allows you to lift 20 pounds. Okay, uh, that was a bad example because let's say well, 10 tons versus 20 tons, that's better for heroes. But anyhow, point is this, um, in DCC, you know, what's the big thing with DCC? The, the Justice League, right? <laughs> you're Batman versus Superman. You're, you're you know guy with a few gizmos versus you know every power on the book. And uh, to be able to fuse that is what you got to do to be able to run DCC. I feel, or not DCC. I'm sorry, DC. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, and they nailed it with this with this rule set for this system. They they really thought out. You know, how can we make things comparable? How can we make one set of rules that can cover these extreme you know quantities of power, and then also have things in the in the rule system where you know um, you know some of those detection skills and stuff. Some of the the you know, things that Batman can do are just as valuable as some of the things Superman can do. And so they have all sorts of rules about uh, wealth and things that, that can come into play and do some interesting stuff. So, uh, again, the you know, whoever designed the system really knew that it's got to fit these parameters. And, and they nailed that. Um, you know, it, 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 there, there's so many people that want to take pre-existing systems and, and just transform it to a new setting. And, and that can work to an extent but uh, it loses some of the craft and beauty that used to exist in, in making a system that that was very honestly trying to do the things that that setting could do. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it, speaking specifically of the the charts and kind of the, the logarithmic uh, charts that show up in, in that DC Heroes game, there's a modern uh, game called Ascendant that has a very similar setup. So anyone out there who enjoy DC heroes or you know that specific thing sounds like fun to you uh you can you can look up Ascendant on drive Through, and you'll get kind of a similar experience it sounds like no now we, what, we've uh, what
1: oh what, sorry go ahead I was just gonna say what do you feel like are some of the things that systems do or don't do that are important to emulating genre so like for example I think one of the things that everybody's going to think of is is how deadly or non-deadly it is you know and in certain genres you want it to be you know like the horror genre you want it to be ultra deadly you got to be scared to lose your life at any moment but then in you know a superheroes game you don't want it to be deadly at all um uh, yeah. some other elements that you think are, are important for the system
0: i think the uh, like the pace of the game is also very important uh because there are certain scenarios that you might want to play through where it's okay for the game to be a little bit slower uh like if you're doing anything that's super strategic any kind of like i don't know real world military simulation i I mean at that point you're almost getting into like war gaming but there Mm -hmm. are there are some types of role-playing games where it's okay for things to take a little bit longer because you really want that feeling of I am, you know, putting everything in place to line up this shot just so, so that when we say go and pull the trigger, everything goes off and it's kind of a a Rube Goldberg effect. But then there are some games where if the combat or the turn taking or, uh, you know, performing actions is too slow and there's too many steps to the process, it's not going to feel right. Like I, I, I honestly feel like in a Western game, I know I keep going back to Westerns, but that's a, a good example of a genre that has very uh, specific trappings that have to be nailed, otherwise it doesn't feel right. Western combat needs to be lightning fast and also pretty deadly. Mm-hmm.
1: But it also has to account for things like tracking ammo, you know, sp- where you hit on a target, things like that, you know, the the old, oh, it's a gut shot, you know, I'm done for, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it's an interesting dichotomy, but you're absolutely right. Um, you've mentioned a couple times on your uh, show the, the game Aces and Eights, mm-hmm. and uh, I've always been searching for, like, the perfect, like, straight-down-the-line Western RPG, mm-hmm. and when that came out at uh, Gen Con, I forget when it was, like, 2007 or something like that, Man, I snatched that up, and it had the gun play just perfect, like like the little shot clock and stuff. I just love that. But then everything else in it was just kind of so slow and methodical, and not very like hip to how a, a western normally moves uh, in, in the non you know combat scenes, shootouts or whatever. Uh, yeah, Vic's the, uh,
0: mentioned... you know, you talked to
1: oh uh,
0: just. Victor Gorchev in Chad is mentioning uh, that our friend, John Torres, the basic expert has a game called cow punchers, which is a, uh, Oh, you've got it over there.
1: Yeah. Nice. Somewhere on that shelf back there. <laughs> I, I bought it today. He was on. I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to check that out. And it, it's, it, I haven't gotten all the way through it yet, but it's, it's looking like it's yeah. Right. What is one?
0: Yeah. So for your like non-fantasy Western, like I know I, I love Deadlands I love weird frontiers. Uh, but even I, at, at times, want just like a straight ahead, essentially we're playing through a, uh, a Clint Eastwood movie western game. And so I, I think uh, Cow Punchers kind of fills that void very well. But yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting when a system has like one or two elements that really look cool or really feel cool, but the rest of the system doesn't quite hold up the weight of the, the setting.
1: Agreed, yeah. Um, did an experiment once. I can't remember if we talked about this one of the other times I was on or not, but um, I'm a big fan of D6 Star Wars from West End Games. Oh yeah. And um, one of the things I was like, well, you know, it'd be kind of cool if the uh, combat rounds were a little bit longer, because a lot of times in that game, you get somebody gets a real good roll on, or they they burn a bunch of force points or character points, and the bad guys taken out like that, you know. So I was like, what if, and this was before the license went over to to, uh, Watsy, I was like, what if we did D&D rules? What if the, you know, the bad guys had kind of hit points, you had to wear them down. And it just totally ruined the feel of it. (laughs) And it was just that sort of thing you're talking about that even even though it made combat last a little longer, it didn't feel like Star Wars at all. It just didn't have that element anymore Hmm. of, you know, these these, uh, cinematic, you know, fast, you know, Result sort of things, you know, one scene, they're shooting at the stormtroopers and the next scene, you know, something else is going on. It's not like, you know, five rounds of, you know, shooting, almost hit him, shooting, almost hit him, shoot him, got him. You know, it's uh, that's just not part of Star Wars. And it didn't didn't work to try to translate it like that.
0: Right. Another mechanic or series of mechanics that I think work well uh, for putting... Your, your players and yourself as the GM in specific genres are kind of like alternate methods of dealing damage to players. Uh, Tim Matthias from Knights and Nerds in chat here mentioned stress mechanics uh, oh, yeah. for horror games. But that that's something... It, there's a tendency... I, I call it the tendency to run everything like it's D&D. So there's a tendency amongst a lot of players who specifically play DD and gms who specifically run DD, uh that everything bad that happens to your character means losing hp and i like games that are willing to say not necessarily or at least not yet you might not lose hp but something else is going to go wrong here uh and so games that really pull that off well uh i i think uh Free League's Alien game has a, a mechanic. Uh, where- everybody, yeah,
1: everybody raves on that. Yeah, um, what, we'll maybe get to this uh, when we go talk about monster design. But that—that's a big thing with monsters. I mean, you can't make every monster just you know a set of deadly claws and a bag of hit points. Uh, it gets pretty old pretty fast. So what else can they take from the character other than their life? You know, and that becomes an interesting question and a very tough design challenge. Um you know, um, action economy that that's something that I think changes games. You know, what what can a character do and how long does it take them to do it? Does it matter, you know, uh, down to the second, you know, how things come out uh, Aces and eight had a kind of an interesting system on that where there wasn't like initiative and you didn't go like in equal rounds, me you, me you, that kind of thing. They had like whatever you do takes so many seconds. And it'll be completed when those seconds are over. And if somebody does something that's, you know, less seconds than that, then they're going to go before you. Um, It was a heck of a lot to try to remember, but it was an interesting system.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, it's a, it's the James Bond RPG or, or classified the, the modern retro clone of it where the initiative you roll initiative and then whoever wins initiative gets to say what they do last and whoever loses says what they do first because that gives the person who wins initiative the chance to essentially see what everyone else is going to do and then react to it rather than just doing the first thing that comes to mind because, you know, the the person who loses initiative, they don't get the chance to take in kind of the full scope of everything picture, going on and yeah. around. The so they just have to do like what their, what their gut tells them to do whereas the person going... Uh, or the person declaring last and going first gets the benefit of uh, knowing what everyone's going to do and then, you know, setting their action accordingly.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a nice uh, kind of change up on that kind of thing. Um, Almost reminds you, of some a lot of times there's some war games that are like that, where if you win initiative, you know, you, you declare your actions last, like you're saying, but then you get to take them first. So like, you know, you, you tell me what your troops are doing, I tell you what my troops are doing, but then I get first shot on you kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a nice mechanic. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about stress. I think, yeah, for some games, you know, Call of Cthulhu type things, losing your sanity. Very important. Uh, how games handle an, uh, intellectual pursuits is interesting to me. I mean, that's, you know, one of these white whales that designers chase is, you know, how do you have a character that's smart in a game and how is that portrayed and how do they solve puzzles other than just simply, Oh, I rolled my dice. I solved it. Uh, yeah. That, you know.
0: that ends up being just kind of a big point of contention for a lot of people in RPGs. Cause there are people who maybe they aren't great at solving puzzles, uh, but they have a character like a wizard who has high intelligence and they get a little bit frustrated that their genius character can't figure out the uh, the puzzle because it's not directed at the character, it's directed at them.
1: Well, yeah.
0: But on the other hand, uh, just being able to roll and if you get like a 10 or better, you just automatically pass the puzzle. That seems unsatisfying as well. So yeah, finding, finding that middle ground is definitely uh, something that a lot of games struggle for.
1: Yeah, I know that there are some... Uh investigation games, and, and to be honest, I don't own any of them, but I, I want to say it's gumshoe, or it might not be, but there's there's some investigation games where your intelligence determines what level of information you get from an encounter. You know, so like if you're investigating a scene and you have a higher intelligence, you get three clues out of the scene, whereas a lower intelligence only gets one. But then it's still up to the player to manipulate those clues to figure out what does this mean in the broader sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that is just a really tough thing. Uh, you know, we, we don't bat an eye at the idea of, you know, rolling a combat roll for a strong character and getting a plus five or whatever, but, but it just seems disgenuous, you know, if it's an intelligent character and they roll and they they automatically solve something, I don't know why. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's, I, I think what it comes down to there is, you're having the most fun when you yourself the player is feeling challenged at least in my opinion mm-hmm. and I, I think honestly i think that's even like less of an opinion and more kind of just an objective reality uh that games are more fun when you feel challenged and feel like there's something to overcome or something to solve uh, otherwise at a certain point if there's no uh barrier Yes, you're playing, but you might as well be watching a movie or watching a TV show or reading a book or something like that. Because you're not, if there's not enough challenge, it's almost like you're no longer an active participant. You're just kind of being moved along in a minecart. Seeing by, the sights, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, my son and I sometimes, uh, you know, he's he's ten, and uh, we'll play an emulator on the computer from like an arcade game, and uh, because you have infinite quarters. Uh, he, he still enjoys it, you know, because it's fun for him. But but for me, it's like, ah, uh, we're, we're just going to win. We just got to keep hitting, you know, more quarters. We'll win eventually. But it is neat. Oh, you know, that's what that boss looks like if you can make it to the 20th level. Okay. You know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it... That,
0: that's an interesting point as well, just, the like, the difficulty of those arcade games and, and how when you play them now and in different formats, a lot of the challenge does feel kind of artificial at that point, but yeah, yeah, I I do feel like that that's another element that makes or breaks an immersion, uh, for me in, in specific settings is how, how much of a challenge do I feel like there is? And do I feel like that's a fair challenge that I can overcome with the tools given to me? Cause you can make a game super super hard and super esoteric uh but that's also not going to be fun because then it's just like well you kind of get to that like point and click adventure game moon logic type place where oh the answer was a banana how was i supposed to figure that out
1: (laughs) yeah yeah you're right it it does kind of it's it's one of those continuums you got to be somewhere kind of in the middle on it or or, you know, at least not to one far side or the other.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, we, we've talked a lot about stuff that makes for like a positive experience in, uh, you know, system and setting kind of having synergy together. What are some of the examples or systems that, that really kind of Break the immersion between system and setting, or really, really create kind of a bad mixture of system and setting that you've run across in in your experience. Yeah,
1: one of the one of the ones that comes to my mind that people always talk about is is actually two. They're the they're the same uh, system, but the uh, the original Star Trek role playing game and the original Doctor Who role playing game by Fossa, um, Both those games run kind of off a very very similar system. And in the rule books, there's a great amount of detail given to combat and to tactics in combat uh, and a decent amount of space for weaponry. And that is just so off point for both those properties. Um, and that was one of the things people a lot of times complained about is that, you know, you get into combat and it stops feeling like Star Trek or, you know, just takes you right out of Doctor Who, you know. Um I think some of the newer versions of those uh, are, are much better uh, adapted you know, rule-wise for, for those games. Uh, one of the things, I uh, at this last Gen Con, I played the new Transformers role-playing game. And I'm a huge 80s, Generation 1 Transformers fan. Um, big part of my childhood, comic books, all that. Uh, and, and the new game didn't have really anything anchored in Transformers. Like, yeah, you could play these big metal robots and they could transform, but it didn't get into anything that was part of that lore. Like, you know, in, in the cartoons there was always, you know, oh, they needed energy on to, to stay alive and keep functioning. And oh, they they would transform because when they transformed they could do something else that they couldn't do as a robot and uh just all that stuff's lost in the new version. It's it's it doesn't use like the, the tech specs that were part of that uh, property on the back of the toys. It doesn't, doesn't take advantage of any of that. It has a, a system that's mechanically sound. It works, it plays, but it has no relation. It uh, doesn't echo any of the lore, any of the, the things that come from that genre that, or, or well, that property, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just a big miss. I mean, you, you Kind of like what we talked about. If you're going to do something, if you're going to go for a particular theme or a particular property, you've got to first nail down what are the conventions of this, and then how do you emulate that? And uh, and that game did none of it. Um, yeah, I say that because <laughs> long ago, back when when uh, Watsy first uh, got bought out by Hasbro, I tried to uh, write an RPG for Transformers and sell it to them. It was one of my first ones. It's terrible. It's out there on the internet somewhere. Um, so I think it's just called like the fan fan made Transformer game by uh, Lewis Hofer, which is my my name. Uh, but but it's much better than what they got now because it, it it does so lovingly try to to hit all the kinds of things that uh, you know. There's you know options to make Gestalt characters like the Constructicons and stuff like that. And again, that's the thing you got to look at. You know what's fun about this? What's cool about this? And how do you emulate that?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah the the interesting thing about that uh transformers game I, I believe if i'm not mistaken it's it's being made on the back of a system called everyday heroes which is basically a modern 5e like a modern set fifth edition uh,
1: I, I now i i, I got to admit i've not played modern day heroes uh, that that's by evil hat games right i i think, I think so um but it did not feel very 5e to me at all um the, the basic system was you rolled a d20 and you rolled uh, a like a bonus die depending on whether you were like highly skilled at something moderately skilled or not skilled uh in fact it reminded me a lot of the new top secret game it has it has a bit of a feel like that where you can get also bonus die for equipment and things like that gotcha i um. might
0: be mistaken. Um, yeah.
1: I, I, I'm not real sure. Uh, like I said, I haven't played modern day heroes. Maybe they've evolved it to that kind of thing. Uh, I do know that it's the same system for the GI Joe game that came out and the, uh, uh, my little ponies game, and, um, and
0: Power Rangers as well
1: and Power Rangers. Yes. Yes. Which, so, uh, yeah.
0: And part of, part of the issue there, um, I, I G.I. Joe and Power Rangers and Transformers have uh, kind of like a core thing in common that there's kind of two different modes of play that you have to deal with. One of them is obviously the vehicles, uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, as Transformers, you are the vehicles, uh, you know, G.I. Joe and, and uh, Power Rangers are very dependent on their, their vehicles and their zords, so that has to be present, but also... Uh, just like regular combat, either, you know, robot on robot or, uh, you know, G.I. Joe versus Cobra or Power Rangers versus their villains. Um, so to, to do any of those properties justice, you have to have two very kind of robust systems that work in tandem with each other. But aside no. from that one thing, transformers is so very different from those other properties uh really in that everything is at like a larger scale because i mean like transformers are large they're bigger Mm -hmm. so everything that they do i feel like needs to if it doesn't have the right impact or the right kind of you know Weight or oomph behind it, it's not going to really feel like Transformers. I don't know what that experience was like for you, but.
1: Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I mean, there's th- that whole property. One of the difficult things about designing something for it is scale. I mean, because not only are these robots larger scale than humans, and you have humans that are, you know, very crucial to the storyline usually, uh, but then amongst them, there's huge gaps in scale. You know, you've got your difference between like a bumblebee and a Unicron, you know, I mean, huge gaps in scale. So, you know, how do you do that? How do you make that entertaining and interesting? And again, going back to, you know, some things we've already talked about, how do you make it so it's just not, oh, this guy's got a ton more hit points and it does a ton more damage Uh, because that's, you know, that, that's not the feel of the the movies and the the property. You don't just have, you know, oh, we're going to have to really, really beat him up over and over again and then he'll be defeated. No, you know, you got to figure your way around it kind of thing. Uh, So, yeah
0: and then i i feel like cooperation and team-based tactics are also a big thing in transformers like you know at, at some points certain transformers turn into things that other tra- like, i'm thinking of megatron turning into the pistol and <laughs> um you know like the sound wave and his uh and, and laser beak that kind of how, how you would like translate that into role-playing games
1: uh yeah layering the powers on each other or whatever yeah Yeah. uh and and that's true i think of all all three of those properties that you know the power rangers and uh gi joe also you know a lot of a lot of teamwork and and uh the the unity of it all is what makes it you know successful or not and 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 like you said i mean the the idea of you know any any one of the three being that individual to being the vehicle or being the robot to being the vehicle, that has to be that has to be a major change for the player. You gotta feel like you're playing a different character or, or having different options that are interesting, but can still somehow, you know, cross over to, you know, oh, I, I'm a in a tank now, but I'm shooting at these soldiers and that still has to work out somehow. And uh if, for my little test drive of it at Gen Con, it just didn't do that. Uh, You know, just it felt like, well, I'm now a truck, but I've got the same things I had as a robot, and the only difference is now I can go a few, few more feet per round than what I could before. And so what? (laughs) Uh, So yeah, it's, and there are a lot more examples out there of games that just don't, you know, systematically feel like they should, setting-wise. I think right now we're we're headed into maybe a dangerous territory where. It's very popular to slap BX-style rules or OSE-style rules into any genre. And, you know, the, those systems are very flexible, but, but the, it, does that make the best game you can make as a designer? And I, I would say no.
0: Yeah, it, it definitely BX rules definitely don't fit with certain genres. Um, a good example of that, like if someone tried to make a BX superhero game, I feel like that would be a very misguided endeavor.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I've played a few like that, <laughs> uh, and I don't want to trash anybody's game because you know it's every every game has its flaws. But uh, you know, I really feel like you know the the DC heroes game we were talking about, or even Marvel superheroes, they stepped out of that, and, and they they had a lot of latitude to, to cover that theme because they stepped away from those kind of rules. And, uh, you know, it's, that, that's, you know, it's so freeing to just start fresh and say, okay, what am I trying to do here and how can we do it? And and what's the best way to do it?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I would, this feels weird to say as someone who has not been in the OSR very long, but I would, uh, put out a word of caution to my OSR brethren, these rules that we love, they're great but if we start trying to force everything into this mold of can it be run in bx can it be run in (laughs) old school essentials uh at a certain point you're gonna go full circle back into the d20 days that uh, birthed your movement so (laughs) um be mindful that yes you know these rules work great for you know medieval fantasy or Uh, you know, like classic sci-fi or, you know, whatever it is that, that you guys have really made these things work for, but you know, for other genres, not so much.
1: Um, coming full circle, talking about, uh, Matt's, um, uh, I don't know what you call it (laughs) is, is show that he had there. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things he said is, uh, he was talking about, should you play other systems? And he said that he didn't think, you know, it was necessary to play other systems to become a better dungeon master or a better player. That really playing other systems was more about becoming a better designer. And I, I'm not sure I agree with him on that. I, I think that a lot of my development as a dungeon master and as a player came from playing other systems that, that put me into other places and, and allowed me to see other ways of doing things and other ways of, of solving problems that you have at an at a RPG table. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I I would agree with you more so than than Matt Colville, uh if only that playing other games uh gives you more stuff to steal. <laughs> that it does. Like I I don't know that I will ever play a full game of like Blades in the Dark, but I've got the book yeah. over here on my shelf and I've definitely uh cribbed the timer system and the flashback system from Blades in the Dark and use them in in other games. So, you know, you don't have to run multi-year campaigns in other systems, but it it is good to be uh, conversant in multiple systems and to know, you know, kind of what all is out there just so that, you know, there are ideas that you can pull from to make your game a little bit better. Uh, You know, I would never... I I would never know about, uh, like, duels if I hadn't read Savage Worlds. I think Savage Worlds is a good system for dueling, specifically uh, in a Western context. Um, But, you know, that that system, I feel like, you know, works really well. And a lot of games maybe could benefit from a similar type uh, system, kind of imported Maybe not with the cards, but kind of the the basic principles of it imported in.
1: I look forward to seeing how the the whole Savage World import of uh, Pathfinder goes. Uh, I've heard you know great ravings about it that it's it's an awesome system and it plays real well. But I, I'm interested to see like how Divergent does that game become from original Pathfinder because it, it seems to me that they can't they can't stay similar for very long because the systems are so so very different
0: yeah and as as much as i love savage worlds i've not played savage pathfinder i've also heard good things but when i think savage worlds fantasy is not what comes to mind for me i know they've done it for years but to me savage worlds is very like rooted in pulp so Mm -hmm. whether it's like an indiana jones type adventure or a Western, or a superhero game. Uh, stuff like that I feel like works really well in Savage Worlds. But fantasy, even the the pulpier side of fantasy, I, I feel like doesn't really work as well in Savage Worlds. But, you know, a, a lot of people seem to have a good time with it. So...
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can kind of see it hitting, like, the, the Conan vibe, the, the Solomon Kane somewhere in between those 2 mm-hmm. Um but but you're right it it's you know it, it definitely is a system that that's just you know perfect for the the whole pulp you know action packed you know two fisted tail kind of thing. It's interesting to see you know what what does that do once you get you know monsters that have all these powers and stuff and and spells and all that into it uh in such a heavy dose mm-hmm.
0: now to to make a little bit of a uh, a hard pivot here. Because uh, I do actually want to talk about this with you. You have recently concluded a, uh, a Kickstarter campaign, uh, Unnatural Selections, uh, which is a, a kind of an expanded monster compendium for Mutant Crawl Classics and uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. So to, to start kind of talking a little bit about monster design here, what were some of the main things you learned in kind of, you know, doing this project?
1: Yeah, so what we already hit on is super important. It's like you, you get into it and you think, oh, you know, and, and probably everybody. Everybody's probably got 20 monsters in them. No problem. Come up with 20 monsters, all different, all cool, great. Okay, now how about 40? Now how about, you know, 60, 80, 100? Can you do 100 monsters? And you think, you know, I'm sure every gamer is like me. Think, ah, no problem, man. I got all these ideas about monsters. But once you start to detail them into the system and, and put rules behind them, you start to understand that oh you know erase the name take off the picture and this guy is the same as that guy mm-hmm. you know it's just you know just another way to die <laughs> and 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 that's no fun you know that's that doesn't give the the reader any value so you start playing around with the system and luckily especially for MCC uh, it is such an interesting system it's got such a diversity of things going on in it um, a lot of little quirkiness that you can play around with it's got both the, the some fantasy elements to it and some scientific uh, science fiction type elements um so it, at least I had you know that 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 big palette of paint to, to work with you know mm-hmm. um so so that's you know you've got monsters that are environmental hazards you know to, to you know speak a language everybody speaks you get you know things like piercers and gelatinous cubes and stuff like that mm-hmm. you've got the puzzle monsters that you know can't seem to be defeated by normal means. You got to figure out a way past them. And, and then you've just got your 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 big, blocky, you know, beefcake monsters that have to be fought. Um, and getting those and getting them in different sorts and getting them at different levels of intensity so that, uh, you know, you have your, your Taresk that can be fought when the characters are at the, the extreme of their level versus the goblin that you fought, you know, your first day out. Uh, that that can be tricky. That can be a lot trickier than you think it is uh, if you've never done it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I find interesting is that uh, there there are monsters that attack the character, and there's monsters that attack the the uh, I guess you could call it um, the system. Really, I guess uh, you know. So like the good example from, from, again, trying to use things everybody knows, you know, D&D type terms, like, like level drain. Okay, that's not really attacking the character, really. It doesn't give you as a player something to react to that, oh, this is how my character's different now as far as, like, their actual, you know, uh personality and stuff like that. But it attacks the system, right? Oh, I took away these experience points, and now you're going to have to earn them back. Um there's a big debate about, you know, is that fair? Is that cool? Is that an interesting monster or not? Uh, it, got any thoughts on monster design? What monsters you... What kinds of monsters you like or don't like?
0: Yeah, I mean, my favorite kind of monsters... Um, let me actually rephrase that. My least favorite kind of monsters are ones that are just uh, large hit point bags. Because yeah. all that does, you know... it that creates this scenario where everyone's just, uh, you know, I swing my sword, I swing my sword over and over again until one side drops. And that when combat devolves into that, that's when I really check out. Cause then I don't mm. feel like I'm in a tense battle scene in a fantasy novel or, or a movie or anything like that. I feel like I'm, uh, doing math at that point. Cause, <laughs> at that point that's what you're doing you're you're doing math and and kind of conjuring up this uh like old crpg uh step forward basic animation step backward next person (laughs) takes their turn Uh, with that said i like monsters that have kind of a unique ecosystem to them you know they they behave in strange ways And understanding how to defeat them is understanding essentially how they, like, live their lives. Uh, So, like, one of my favorite details, uh, if you actually dig into uh, your monster manuals for 5e and read about what different types of dragons are like, the white dragon sleeps hanging upside down like a bat. That, to me, is fascinating. That specific detail. That you yeah. could walk into their lair, and if they were asleep, you'd see them hanging upside down like a giant, a giant draconic bat.
1: Um, and then you got imagine you're in that glacier. There's all those like giant icicles here, there, and everywhere. And oh yeah. wait, that's not an icicle. <laughs> oh crap! Yeah, it, it, and that's what I kind of came up to is that you know it's it, it became obvious it's it's not so important what the monster does as much as it is how it does it. You know, uh, taking. 1d5 hit points away from a character that doesn't matter but you know does it do it by you know confining them and strangulating them over time does it do it by you know uh quick little barbs that fly out um those little details matter a little bit more really what it does or or, or, you know how it's doing it Mm um i I really like like you were saying i like the ecology I, i try to put a lot of time into that in the book because to me again that's that connects it to like Something more than a bag of hit points like, oh, I get why this thing's here and what it's doing. And there's other ways around it now because I understand it. Um, I really enjoy uh, monsters that have interesting powers. Um, There's a creature in the book that uh, it's it's only way of communicating is with memories and it's able to, like, take memories and give memories and so i i find that fascinating like what would it be like to suddenly remember something that you know never happened to you and how do you communicate with that you know how do you you know how do you say hello in memories how do you say you know get lost in memories uh you know weird things like that you know are interesting to me but i you got to keep a diversity of monsters there and uh, so i you know i I tried to do everything you know a little bit of this a little bit of that because you know there's a game master can't just have one type of monster in the game or it gets boring. You got to have that, you know, ever-rotating. Uh, well, this time we're kind of actually in a real fight and this time we're we're more trying to puzzle things out. Mm-hmm. But, uh...
0: Vic in chat here makes a, a good point. There's a lot of focus on monsters as, you know, enemies, but one thing that I think kind of gets glossed over and I think uh, Vic would feel the same way uh, since he's bringing it up non-monstrous enemies. So like, how do you make interesting bandits or interesting mm-hmm. uh, town guard or interesting uh, like evil mages creatures that aren't net are not creatures, even uh, people that aren't friendly uh, that, you know, your, your party is going to have encounters with, but they aren't just reduced to, you know, I, I cast a magic missile or I swing my sword.
1: Yeah. And I actually, that was something that I tried to address in it. There's actually is a whole page on bandits and a page on different, you know, like mutant casts and stuff. Um, And the the approach I took was just trying to give the game master a litany of interesting things they could be trying to do or reasons they could be trying to do it. Um, I feel like that's really helpful as a game master so that you're not just, you know, Here's a figure, he's called a bandit, you know, he's going to steal from you, kill him off. You know, uh, I mean, why is he stealing? You know, what? how is he going to try to steal from you? You know, is it, uh, what kind of setup, what kind of, you know, he's, he's going to make you as a mark by, you know, telling you, oh, my, my wagon's busted, I'll pay you 100 gold to go help me fix it, and there's 10 other guys in that, you know, wagon ready to jump out at you. You know, um, so that it, we really, you know, in this design, I tried to do that a lot, is, you know, take that common thing that you're going to need—you know, hit points and, and all the little stats for—but give some some flair to it that's usable at the table to make it an interesting encounter and to give the players some decisions to have to make in that gray area of oh, you know, these these kids are bandits—they're stealing because their town's been ravaged. What do we do here? You know, do we do we side with them? Do we you know beat them up and take our stuff back? Do we you know, uh, you know, get. Make some decisions that are interesting.
0: I think for me, uh, the the thing that really makes or breaks non-monstrous enemies is abilities that allow for interesting tactical play. So, uh, like, t- to make bandits more interesting, if you added something where they got some kind of, uh, like, advantage on initiative... Cause they're faster than other people or some some kind of bonus to their initiative uh, so that you know to, to really set up that their specialty is ambushing people or uh, like any any group of soldiers if they've got some kind of pack tactics where the more of them there are uh, the the stronger they are and if they have a commander with them that makes um, you know th- that it's makes them even, even more, more powerful. Uh, when, when you know, compared to just a couple of soldiers together.
1: Yeah. And, and along those lines, you know, got a section on dragons. I tried to come up with interesting breath weapons. I mean, we, you know, acid fire, yeah, but those are very cool and can be used, especially by a, a you know, well-versed game master to, to do some cool effects within the environment. But I tried to come up with some goofy things, some interesting things. Get a dragon that can blow bubbles that like encase people and then float them up, <laughs> you know. Uh, just you know, off the wall stuff that just gives you something new, something that the, the players can you know walk away from the table going, Man, you'll never believe what happened tonight. We had this creature that did this thing, and it, you know, uh, but it's it, it's it's interesting if if you have you know, if you're listening to this or watching this and uh, you, you think you're good at, at making monsters, I'm sure you are. But uh, do it sometimes. Sit down and just see how many you can come up with and how you would tease that out with whatever rule set you're working with, because it becomes a challenge. It becomes a real challenge to to address other things and hit points. You know, you can address stats. You can address, uh, you know, advantages and disadvantages within actions you're taking, you know, minus a D, plus a D or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, what else can you get at that's interesting to a player? You know, can you change things about the character? Uh, some Sometimes that's a big trigger, right? You know, there's, uh, oh, you know, like a, uh, oh, what's the, um, Tomb of Horrors. There's the door that you go through that changes your gender. And a lot of people are like, oh, you know, that's such a rotten, da, 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 da. It's, you know, it's a big trigger point. Um, but it, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of like, oh, wow, you know, what? That's, you know, that's fundamentally making me different than what I was. You know, now i got this whole issue of, you know, who am I? <laughs> Did the gender of my character matter or not? And and to me, that's an interesting thing. Um, but it is, you know, it's not not for everybody. And, and so as a designer of creatures, you got to kind of think about, like, what can you do and what's, what's off the table to mess with as far as the player is concerned.
0: Yeah, it's that same... Um dichotomy that that we talked about with uh, kind of setting and system uh just the the balance between you want there to be a challenge but at the same time uh you know you you want that challenge to uh, not feel like it's insurmountable uh, so you know creating something that really does something weird to player characters, but not something so weird that they just don't even know how to deal with it, or, or oh. almost can't deal with it in a way. That's kind of the the sweet spot that you're you're aiming for is uh, something that's going to make them have to think, but you know, still be solvable for them in the moment.
1: For sure, yeah. And, and then there's the things like um, uh, like instant death. You know, that was something I really tried to puzzle around as far as you know, like if, if you have a save versus poison or die, how much more interesting is that versus save versus poison or die in 24 hours? You know, giving them that chance that, oh my goodness, you know, now we've got this side quest to try to find some way to deal with this, you know, venom and, and, and extricate it or whatever. Um, other other things that I found interesting was the pyro uh, the, the power spiral phenomenon. You know, you hear about this with musicians, how, like, you know, somebody does their their guitar piece, and they, they jack up their amp for that, and then it's somebody's drum solo, and they jack up their amp for that, and then pretty soon, like, everybody's playing 10 levels higher than what they were. You, you find that when you're making your monsters, that, oh, this this monster, oh, he's a real tough guy, you know, he's going to have, you know, th- these kind of stats here, and then, oh, but this this monster's even tougher than that one. Uh so you find yourself doing ridiculous things that you have to go back and then rebalance everything and be like, oh, wait a minute, you know, this is, you know, we got to keep it in scale. Uh, just It's just phenomenal. I, I You know, having played role play games for so long, I'm just so surprised by myself that there, there's all this to making monsters that, you know, I should have known was there. I mean, I've made monsters before for games, but when you have to do so many of them and they have to be, you know... uh within the same space. You know, they, they got to take up this book and they've got to make sense as a continuum in the book uh, and be comparable and all that. Uh, it, it is so much, there's so much more to it than you ever thought was there is what I've come to learn.
0: Yep. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it it, it really turns into, um, you know, trying to make everything different but also feel like it all belongs together when, yeah. when it comes to Putting something together in a book like that, because um, yes, you you might be able to uh, slip David Lee Moth in as a monster. Hold on, get right there. Too. Does that really fit with uh, the the book that you're trying to write there? So you, yeah, I imagine that's pretty difficult for anyone sitting down trying to write any kind of monster compendium. Is uh, making everything unique, but also feel like it fits in the same world.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you want every monster to be a star, right? You want what? you want the game master every time they turn a page to go, oh, I got to use that one. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I got to use that one. But it's it's hard to do because uh, you know not not every scene of the movie can be the climax. So you, you do need some kind of some filler minion kind of creatures too. Uh, but yet you want them to be interesting. <laughs> got to give them something. Absolutely. So.
0: Well, we are kind of running up against the end of our time here, and there's uh, one thing that I wanted to mention uh, that Lou actually brought to my attention. Uh, this will be coming up uh, on December 10th, I believe, and I'm going to put the link here in chat for everyone. But, uh, you know, the information that's currently on the website is for last year. Uh, according to Lou, they should be updating it soon, but. Uh, this is the uh Jerry Steffick memorial crawl for the cure uh ether Meet. and what this is is an online uh event where there's going to be a a dungeon crawl classics uh dungeon crawl uh also a raffle and some other uh you know fun things going on with all proceeds going to the American Cancer society um I've not ever participated in something like this i i uh you know, didn't see it last year. Uh, but Lou, is this something that you uh, participated in last year?
1: Yeah, this will be my second year of participating in it. It's uh, put on by a great guy, Corey Welch. Um, it is a uh, sister to the uh, uh, Crawl for the Cure that he does at Game Con. Uh, this was kind of what developed out of COVID. And then he's just kind of been keeping them both running just so that, you know, everybody across the nation, regardless of their ability to get to Game Con, can do this sort of thing. So it's, it's a, uh, It is, I believe it's 16 hours of gaming, four separate games, four separate game masters, four separate gaming groups. Uh, It goes on all day live on, uh, it's one of the Goodman Games channel, I think it's called the Dungeon Crawler or something like that on Twitch. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can watch, obviously, but you can actually get on there and you can pledge to make things happen. Uh, And then everybody that's a donor gets put in a raffle every hour and a lot of publishers, both big and small, um, have donated lots of nice little goods to get in those raffles. Uh, it's uh, it's just a great way. I mean, if you're like me, and I, I'm just a, I had you know a lot of family affected by cancer, so I'm all about you know getting the cancer research funded. Uh, this is a great way to do it. It's entertaining and fun. They are looking for a few more players. Uh, so if you you know if you, you would like to be on the show and, and playing in the games. Uh, you might uh, reach out to Corey Welch uh, and, and let him know that you're interested. Uh, I myself am running a game. It's uh, going to be the the late night game again this year. That's what I had last time. Uh, so it's uh, the nine to one o'clock slot. Uh, you can watch me running, uh, uh, what was it, Home for the Hall of Death, which is a uh, Julian Brennick uh, MCC adventure. I'm going to highly adapt it, though. It's going to be a lot different than it reads. So it should be a fun time.
0: Absolutely. And the last thing I want to mention, because it's got 15 days left, everyone, and it's not just because he's here, but once again, I need to shout out Viktor Gorchev uh, with his uh, campaign that he's got going here, uh, The Modern Adventurer's Guide to Gears and Gun- to Guns and Gear, a 5e add-on. Uh, we are right around 75% funded on this, uh, just you know, a couple grand to go for this project to be fully funded and and delivered to all of you out there who have backed it. Uh, So, you know, if you have friends who are curious about, you know, running 5e in a modern setting, or, you know, if you've heard me talk about it or Vic talk about it on another stream and you're you're really curious about it, you guys have 15 days left as of right now to uh, back this campaign. So let's get Vic over the threshold here uh he he's really deserving of of getting this funded
1: uh let me just say if if you're thinking you're going to back it and you're putting it off don't because if you've never ran a kickstarter these days right here right in the middle they're lonely lonely days and boy it's nice to see it pop up again a couple times here in the middle to keep your keep your heart high you know Mm absolutely yeah,
0: don't don't be the cause of Vic's coronary. Just go ahead and back it right now. Uh, there's no points for backing it with like 59 seconds to go. Uh, just just do it now if you're gonna do it. Come yeah. on,
1: you don't want to be a me too person at the last second.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, with that, unfortunately, uh, L, I'm sorry, but you know there there's a baby in this house that I need to take my turn with. So uh we have to uh uh we have to end things here tonight. Uh Lou, thank you so much for coming on. Uh this conversation for feel me. felt like it flew by. Uh we need to do this again sometime. Anytime. Absolutely. Well, guys, that's gonna do it for tonight's episode of Rollin' Bones. Uh next week is the week of Thanksgiving. Uh there will not be uh Rollin' Bones next week because I've got family coming in, I need to do prep work, but I will be on the natural ones with the Basic Expert in Victor Gorchev that Monday. Not sure what we'll be talking about, but you know, you guys will be able to see me on that stream. And then the week after next week, so this will be uh, November 29th. I will be joined by Servant of Shiloh, aka RPG Elite. I'm looking forward to talking to him. Uh, we're going to talk, you know, obviously RPG elite philosophy. We're going to talk about faith and role playing. Uh, there's going to be lots of cool and interesting topics because Servant is a very, uh, you know, cool and interesting person. So uh, he and I are going to have a great conversation, and I'm definitely going to have a great conversation with uh, with Vic and with John over on the Natural Ones next week. So. Until next time, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I will see you guys next time.